According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good to be back. We haven't had a Life of Christ class in three weeks now, so uh, or four weeks, with three weeks off. It's been a while since we've been here. Let's uh, turn to Matthew 22. It'll be the primary text, what we look at. We will bounce back and forth between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, for this episode, as well as, oh, about another half a dozen or so very quickly after this. Uh, we're in a stretch here uh, from Matthew 22 through 25. Um, we're going to be in the Synoptic Gospels for a significant portion. It'll be a while now before we get back to the Gospel of John, actually. Meant to look to see if I still have. I do. I still have some of the harmonies. If you need the harmonies for uh, the final week at Jerusalem. All right. Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22, episode six called "Tribute to Caesar." Very well known. This is the one where he says, "Well, whose picture is on the coin?" And render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And render unto God that which is God's. So uh, you know the story, and uh, you can teach it in about five minutes, or you can pour over the details and recognize that there's a tremendous amount of doctrine that we have to glean in the process of this. So let's take a moment for silent prayer before we get started, and, uh, and then start working our way through the text, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have once again to assemble together. We thank you for uh, this Life of Christ series, Father. Now more than 300 lessons we've been in this class. And just thank you for all the blessings it is to study our Savior and to uh, glean uh, principles for our application, the, the depth of doctrine that he taught, and to have the, uh, the pattern, the prototype there for our own Christian way of life. We thank you for, uh, for all things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, let's read through the Matthew account and then we'll uh, take the time to catch the other ones here as well. Uh, they're largely identical. Uh, starting in Matthew 22:15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they uh, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Uh, tell us then, actually I should reread this with more of a, an oily, smooth, kind of flattering, serpent kind of voice. Because it's, it's dripping, it's dripping thick in, uh, in that verse. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and uh, leaving him, they went away. So this is uh, part of a series, uh, but he is getting more and more, they're getting more and more hostile to him. Of course, they want him dead, and they have for several episodes now. Uh, but he has been turning the tables very consistently. 
He has been getting more confrontational himself. Uh, recently, they had a question for him, and he said, well, I'm not going to answer your question until you answer my question. Remember that? And uh, they, he kind of stumped them, and they said, well, we can't answer that. So he said, all right, I'm not answering you either then, right? And uh, here, he's uh, leaving them amazed and speechless because they think they have him trapped into an either-or. They think they have him between a rock and a hard place where he can't answer either way. And uh, he does answer. He answers... Um, with a, uh, with a discernment that uh, just leaves them uh, kind of, well, why didn't we think of that <laughs> kind of a thing? Uh, and it will proceed as well. And you'll notice further down in this chapter, um, of course, we've got the story here where the Sadducees come with their ridiculous story of this seven times widowed woman. And we'll talk about that when we get to that next episode. Um, but at the end of that, you'll notice in verse 33, now the crowds are going to be astonished. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. More and more, this is becoming the pattern. Uh, he's going to throw a question back at them about uh, the son of David versus the son of God. And how come if he's David's son, look in verse 45, um, if uh, David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And he throws it back to them, and they don't have an answer either, and, and they're kind of afraid now to, uh, to continue any more challenges, which we see in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Well, now, this is Wednesday of the crucifixion week, so we're talking for the rest of Wednesday, for Thursday, and then, of course, Friday is uh, the day he goes to the cross. All right, so here's our pattern. Uh, we understand, first of all, the Lord's enemies are dedicated to his death, but they still prefer a lawful way to make it happen. The Lord's enemies are dedicated to his death, and they have been for several episodes. Uh, but they still prefer to find a lawful way to make it happen. And I put lawful in quotes. Um, obviously, their minds are made up and they're going to murder an innocent man no matter what because he needs to die in their, in their uh, view. But to find a lawful way that's all right. It's a good reminder. In fact, I don't think I turned my phone off. We can all double check. That'd be very embarrassing. All right. You know, if you're going to commit murder, you want to do it lawfully, right? <laughs> and by lawful, we don't mean, strictly speaking, legal, okay, uh, or non-prosecutable in a secular Roman legal court. They mean lawful, compatible to law, Mosaic law, that is valid under their religious system, you understand. And under law, of course, there were a variety of uh, procedures for death, typically by stoning, uh, some one, you know, a couple cases by burning or other methods, but typically by stoning and the right to put a wrongdoer to death under uh, Mosaic law. And this is what they're trying to find a way to do. And they've been unsuccessful all this time uh, because uh, he's, he's sinless, <laughs> you know, and that's been the testimony that he has committed no sin and he is the, the spotless lamb. And, and so being sinless, um, they're finding it hard to uh, find the grounds for accusation. So they lay a, tra a trap. And the trap is trying to find him to say something that may not be wrong or may not be sinful, but is at least it is uh, accusable 
to whereby they have a plausible reason to put him to death. And this is uh, the reason for the trap. Now, I said we were going to look at the other accounts, so let's go ahead and do that. Hold your finger there in Matthew. Let's read the other ones. The other ones are much shorter. Um, Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. We'll see if you can spot some of the vocabulary differences here. Then uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Once again, is it lawful? They keep stressing the term lawful. Um, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one, and he said to them, and it's interesting, he didn't even have a denarius in his pocket, uh, so he says, Bring me one. Um, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. All right, so largely similar. And now Luke chapter 20. Verses 20 through 26. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. Now, I've always found this interesting and I wonder, if, you know, does the adversary do something similar today? Does he send agents into churches and, you know, people that pretend to be righteous or act like they're saved or things of that nature. And it you know, wouldn't surprise me, so, so to speak. But um, I wonder how long they last in, in ministries, in doctrinal type ministries in particular, uh, where we don't have a lot of the fun and games and frills and entertainment and so forth. It might be, uh, if I was an unbeliever, I'd be pretty bored uh, <laughs> in a place like this. But who knows? Um Anyway, but here it is, that they might catch him in some statement. They can't find any wrongdoing, but if they can find a careless statement, something that was said either mistakenly or accidentally or even just thoughtlessly, or even something that can get him to say honestly, because he is absolutely truthful. So if they can use his truthfulness against him, where he can say something that is absolutely true, but still objectionable enough to warrant a... Uh, an issue, and we'll, we'll describe the, the two uh, alternatives here in a moment, so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They're going to see if they can maybe go that route and uh, have the Romans put him to death. So they questioned him, saying, "Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful? There's a lawfulness again. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not?" Are we consistent with Mosaic law or are we violating Mosaic law when we pay this poll tax to Caesar? But he detected their trickery, there's a new word, and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and description does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And uh, he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. And that's part of their problem, too. Not only do they have to trap him, but he has to, they have to trap him in saying something where there are plenty of witnesses to what he said. And this is uh, 
you know, one of the tactics that they are uh, undertaking. All right. So the Lord's enemies are dedicated to his death. They have been for several episodes now. In fact, it's no longer, I mean, it's mandatory. They cannot tolerate it. They've got to get him killed. They, gotta, uh, they realize Lazarus is also a problem. They've got to kill him again, right? Except he won't stay dead. He's already come back to life once. And they say, well, this is not acceptable. We need to, we need to kill him too. So let's look at it. Uh, first of all, let's just look at the different terms. I, th- I find them instructive uh, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have different terms for the trap that is uh, being set. And I think uh, it's worth at least being aware of the vocabulary and being aware of the concept. The vocabulary may not be as big a deal uh, because they're, they're pretty obscure terms. But in Matthew, the trap is a verb here, pagiduo, P-A-G-I-D-E-U-O. And it's uh, the only place in the Bible that pagaduo occurs. Um, and rather than trap, I would like the translation to ensnare um, as we read it here in Matthew. Um, that they might ensnare him in verse 15. So the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might ensnare him. Uh, nothing wrong with trap, I guess, but... Uh, the nature of a pagus, P-A-G-I-S, it is a, it is a snare. It is a, uh, a little rope snare type of trap that you might you know, catch a rabbit or a small animal, something, so to speak. Uh, pagus has, has five New Testament uses, including three in the pastoral epistles that are very important for us to recognize. Uh, the warnings in First and Second Timothy related to the snare of the devil, the snare of the adversary, and that uh, very important concepts. Pastors are vulnerable to this. Uh, any believer needs to be aware of, of the snare, which is named in, in the pastoral epistles, named as pride. Pride is the snare that can cause uh, the, the pastors to be tripped up there. So, um, pagaduo is our verb here in Matthew, number 3802, only New Testament use that you have. It is related, though, to the noun pagus, P-A-G-I-S, which is number 3803. And that's the noun that we have in uh, these important passages in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 3.7, 1 Timothy 6.9, and 2 Timothy 2.26. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.7, this is in the paragraph uh, related to overseers in the local church, right? In verses 2 through 7, an overseer then must be, and it describes the characteristics of a, of a, a pastor of a church. It says in verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare, the pagus, the snare of the devil. So uh, we have the application there. And I find this interesting because the scripture warns us that these snares are out there. Um, and yet this is exactly what the, the critics are trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to get him to fall into their snare. And yet what's his reputation? <laughs> right? He doesn't have a bad reputation. He has a flawless reputation. In fact, his reputation is so awesome, they use it in their flattery. You're a teacher of truth. You defer to no one. You fear God. Um, you know, you're the, you're the greatest teacher of our generation almost. I mean, they're laying it on thick. It means he has a wonderful reputation among the people. And that's what they're trying to break. And so uh, that's the... Uh, the use of, of Pagus there in 1 Timothy 3.7. Over to chapter 6, we've got another use in verse 9. Uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, a pagus, and many foolish and harmful desires 
which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So money is only one. There are many foolish and harmful desires that uh, can trip a man up in the ministry. And finally, 2 Timothy 2.26, not just for those in ministry, but all believers are vulnerable to being held captive, which is why the Lord's bondservant must be not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And this is the exhortation here, why we try to be gentle in all of our uh, ministry. Never know when, uh, if there's someone you haven't seen for a while, and the Lord may bring them back. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so there's that snare once again. So here they are. In all these cases, we've seen the snare has a context for angelic conflict. Snares have a, a context for uh, satanic application. And uh, so what do you think is at work here on this Wednesday of the Passion Week when uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians are uh, teaming up? You know, they never team up. Okay? You know, and here they're teaming up. Um, well, it's definitely satanic. It's definitely uh, the desire to bring about this snare. All right, now in Mark, the vocabulary is a little different. Mark uses the verb agruo, A-G-R-E-U-O, agruo. And uh, this is a fishing term. Um, it is also used in a trapping realm, but it's used of a catch, a fishing catch, as it were. An agra is a catch. Uh, A-G-R-A, Strong's number 61, has two uses, both in Luke 5. But agruo is the verb to catch in a net, to catch in a net, or to simply catch. Uh, the Luke uh, references here are to literal fishing. Luke 5, verse 4 and verse 9. You remember this story where... Uh, uh, he gets into one of the boats and they put out a little ways. And then when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out uh, into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And uh, Peter said, you know, we worked all night. We didn't, we caught nothing. And then in verse nine, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish, which they had taken. So that's the use there, the literal terms. A guruo, again, is a hapax. This is the only place in the New Testament where it's found is in Mark, uh, the chapter here in Mark 12 for this episode. But it does have some Septuagint uses. And there's Septuagint uses in the early sections of Proverbs, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, in the section there where um, the young man is being warned about the, uh, the, the strange woman, uh, being warned about the uh, adulterous woman and the dangers of unmarital uh, sexual activity, the promiscuity is a, is a snare. And uh, very important that we understand this. Proverbs. We've been in Proverbs for several weeks now, months even, with the, the teenagers. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own uh, iniquities will capture the wicked. This is the verb agruo. And, uh, of course, in the full context back here, verse 15 and following, well, even earlier than that. 
the whole the whole chapter. Um, the li- you see in verse three there, the lips of the adulteress drip honey, smoother than oil as her speech. In the end, she's bitter than wormwood. And uh, all throughout the whole context of this chapter, it's the warning to the young man about the uh, the unstable, promiscuous woman. And uh, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. The blessings of what God provides in the boundaries of marriage then is pure and refreshing and definitely a blessing. And, and uh, that's what God has provided for you, not what uh, the adversary would provide for you. So verse 21, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. It is enslaving. In fact, uh, it's, I think it's the worst addiction out there, worse than drugs or alcohol, is the promiscuity addiction that starts to feed different things and uh, described right there. It's ensnaring. And the, uh, the world system, of course, has no clue on this. They say, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with it. No, it's fun. It's healthy. It's normal. And uh, as long as you, you know, take steps to avoid pregnancy or disease, then just do whatever you want to do and have fun and all this other stuff. And they don't realize they're actually ensnaring their own souls. Their souls are being enslaved to a pattern that does not understand the, uh, the power of what they're messing with there. Next chapter over, chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. And uh, again, this is the warning, the wisdom of God to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, and uh, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. And, uh, you know, pretty girl and her smile and batting her eyes, and that's, uh, that's worse than, worse than uh, handcuffs, I think, for a young man. But you'll notice... Um, capture you with her eyelids. That's the verb that we have here in, in this text, uh, in Mark anyway. The text that the Pharisees were trying to capture Jesus in a statement. All right. So that's the Mark vocabulary. Luke uses something else entirely different. For Luke, the trap is the verb epilumbonomai. Epilumbonomai. It's a compound of lumbonomai, which is to take or to take hold of, and epi intensifies it. Epi Lumbonabai, uh, Lumbonabai is number 1949, has 19 New Testament uses. This one's actually very well attested, unlike uh, Pagaduo and Agruo. Uh, the problem is, is that it's so uh, idiomatic. You could take hold of all kinds of things. And uh, it doesn't always mean the same thing. It just depends on the context of what it is that's being taken hold of. So, uh, but we do have it in Luke 20, verses 20 and 26, where it's used twice in this immediate context. And makes it clear they're trying to um, catch on to, hold on to a statement. They might catch him in some word. It's logos in all three of these uh, uses. They want to catch him in some word so that they could deliver him to rule and authority. And likewise in verse 26, they weren't able to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. They weren't able to lock hold on to trap him in something that he had said. So... Anyway, they're all, they're all vivid, and I hope that we understand that uh, this is the nature of the adversary. He tries to trap us. Um, I think the worst thing about the traps, though, uh, not to teach an entire doctrine of spiritual traps here today, but, but just a thought. 
that if you find yourself in a trap, remember the verse that we saw in Second Timothy that there is an escape from that trap. Uh, there's always grace. There's always forgiveness. There's always the opportunity to be restored to fellowship. And the, uh, I think the worst thing about the adversary's traps is that he tries to um, uh, he, he tries to twist the guilt around where the person is so afraid of not only the trap, but once they're in the trap, they're afraid of being exposed uh, for being in that trap. And so they they don't ask for help and they don't. Uh, seek for the, the repentance and the deliverance because they don't want people to know that they're in this trap that they're in. And that's the worst, uh, I think that's to me, that uh, that guilt factor is the worst thing about any of these traps that the adversary uses. So um, kind of interesting that we hit this at the same time that we're doing the uh, the study in Corinthians about repentance without regret. And, and what God allows us to do when we're restored to fellowship is we have no regrets. We're, we're, th we're thankful for the grace that's brought us back into fellowship. And there's no regret. See, well, we'll, we'll deal more with that here tonight. All right. Interesting partnership, point two. An interesting partnership between Pharisees and Herodians. You know, this would be like Republicans and Democrats agreeing to something. Or actually more severe than that. More severe than that. Um, the Pharisees wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees basically came into existence as a protest against the, uh, the uh, Herodian rule. But here they, uh, they have agreement. A partnership between Pharisees and Herodians attempts to lock Jesus into an either-or dilemma. They present him with an either-or. Pay the tax or don't pay the tax. What is your view? What is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the tax? Or does it violate Mosaic law to pay the tax? Uh, should we counsel our disciples, we're rabbis, should we counsel our, our disciples to not pay this tax? And so they're trying to lock him into this dilemma. I don't like how the Lord turns the table on him. First of all, siding with the Herodian. Now remember who the Herodians are, okay? Herod and the party of Herod. Not just Herod, Herod's dead by now, but he's got sons and they've got other um, uh, forces of government in the, uh, in the, in the area, Okay. Basically, they are client kings working on behalf of Rome. Uh, they, they're not Jewish. Uh, in fact, they're Edomite. Uh, but uh, Herod's father did convert to Judaism. Uh, Herod's father, Antipas, did become a practicing uh, religious uh, observant uh, follower of, of Mosaic law and, uh, and uh, married the daughter of the high priest. So tried to forge a political connection with, uh, with uh, the uh, Hasmonean dynasty, the, the Maccabean dynasty of, of Israel. Uh, but they're still, they are secular. They are Roman sanctioned. Um, but by this time, um, Pontius Pilate is the governor in, in Judea, right? Uh, Herod, um, the Tetrarch, is, is the ruler in Galilee. And we'll see him shortly. In fact, tomorrow, on Friday, of this Passion Week, uh, Jesus will have two trials, one before Pilate and one before Herod. Okay. Uh, there's another Herod, Philip, uh, Herod Philip, that's uh, over in Decapolis in the region east of the Sea of Galilee. There's other, uh, other uh, areas around. So uh, the Herodians are the party that is cooperating with the Romans, and they collect taxes for the Romans, and they uh, are very much behind this poll tax and in favor of this poll tax. Uh, they have to meet their annual tribute to Rome every year or they lose their client king status. They might be accused of being in rebellion, as it were. And so um, 
This is the, the nature of it. So siding with the Herodians would diminish Jesus' popularity among the Jewish population at large. The, the Jews very much resented the, the tribute that they had to pay, the poll tax that they had to pay. They understood that they had to pay, uh, you know, this was, because this was on top of everything else. It was on top of their, um, their tithes. This was on top of their offerings. It was on top of their Levitical service for the temple. This was on top of supporting the, the uh, Sanhedrin. This was on top of everything else. Now they've got to pay this poll tax as part of their tribute to the Roman uh, Empire, and so it was very unpopular. Unpopular by the Pharisees and uh, also by the, the, um, the, uh, the Zealots. The Zealots went so far as to you know, do terrorist actions in, in uh, uh, fighting against the, the Roman occupation. Now, why would the Pharisees be promoting this then, see? Um, because they want to, see, if they can get him to side with the Herodians, then that puts him at odds with them, right? And this was, uh, I've said many times, and I hope you understand this, the source for the Pharisees' power was their popularity. They were kind of like the tea partiers of their day. Uh, the common man on the street loved the Pharisees because the Pharisees were uh, knowledgeable. The Pharisees were dedicated to study. The Pharisees were set-apart ones. That's what Pharisee means. And the Pharisees were someone that, that, uh, that they respected, the heroes to them, going all the way back to the Maccabean era. Okay? I think much of the hostility against Jesus by the Pharisees was from the fact that he was diminishing their popularity. You know, that was the very source of their power. And then he's taken that away from them. Uh, that there were so many thousands you know, that were following him and his popularity that uh, they, they felt threatened by. All right, so if he sides with the Herodians, and that's going to diminish his popularity among the Jewish population at large. And that is huge. If they can remove that, they'll have an easier time uh, accusing him of, of some kind of blasphemy and, and, and stoning him. Or, if he actually sides with the Pharisees, if he agrees with them and says, yep, you know what, that poll tax is not lawful, then that could mark Jesus as being hostile to Caesar. And of all the accounts, I think, um, well, they all mention Caesar. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Uh, the one in Luke, I think, was the most obvious or blatant about trying to find cause to um, show him in rebellion against Caesar. Um, yeah. So siding with the Pharisees would mark Jesus as hostile to Caesar. Either way, if they, can, if they can diminish his popularity among the people, then their religious court can stand a chance to, to put him to death. If they can cause him to be odious in the eyes of the Romans, well, then maybe they can get a Roman court to put him to death. Okay? At this point, they don't even care. <laughs> Whichever method can execute him is fine. They just want him dead. And so they think this is a beautiful trap. And whichever way he answers, uh, they'll be able to start working their poison towards uh, this particular end. All right, now, some thoughts on their phony praise. Point three. Their phony praise does, I, I think, communicate an interesting perspective to the Lord's public reputation. What was he known for? This has to reflect accurately. This has to reflect his true reputation or they couldn't use it in their flattery. There has to be a legitimate truth to what they're, 
discussing here. It is phony. Uh, and yet I think it's interesting to see that this is the reputation that he carried. Um, we've read through it already, I think, in all, all three accounts. But you understand how dripping it is. Uh, teacher, we know that you are truthful. Is that a good reputation to have? <laughs> you want to have an, a reputation for being truthful? Okay. Remember we just saw what we saw in the pastoral epistles. This is actually a requirement. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. That he must have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. Uh, as, as a part of his public identity. Part of his public um, you know, persona, reputation. What is the pastor known for? If, uh, if he's known in the community for being a, a shady business person... You know, like uh, maybe before he became a pastor, he had some kind of a business or whatever, and he was known for some pretty underhanded deals. Uh, maybe his uh, his business was in the newspaper for uh, tax evasion or maybe uh, whatever. Okay. Well, do you think something like that is a, is a mark against a pastor? If, if a, a, a bad testimony like that becomes public or becomes known, it's going to, of course, it's going to have a, an effect on a, a local church, on a ministry, on his effectiveness. That's why that's a requirement in 1 Timothy 3.7. So he's known for being truthful. That he teaches the way of God in truth. That this is what he teaches. He's not teaching his own method. He's not teaching his own uh, way, but he's teaching the way of God. How many times did he say, my teaching is not mine, but it is the one who sent me, right? From John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John chapter 7. He's teaching the way of God. He's not teaching his own wisdom. He's not teaching his own path. And you defer to no one. Defer to no one. Um, I can try to you ever read the Mishnah? I know Warren's mentioned it a few times. He's shown a few little clips. I've mentioned it a few times, and I've shown a few little clips. Um, if you ever read it, understand that this, it was common in his day. Um, it was common to defer to whoever it was you were deferring to and then add to it with your own little twist or your own little understanding. Okay? And so uh, on, on any particular question, on a question of taxes or a question of whatever, it would be common for a rabbi to say, well, uh, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Shimei says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. But I say this. Okay? And, and so you have kind of a chain of custody or a chain of testimony or evidence as far as that goes. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not cite Rabbi anybody in anything of what he's teaching. And this is another element that makes him different from all their other teachers that he teaches with authority. He's actually teaching, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. This is his word. This is how we should live. And uh, so you defer to no one. I think is extraordinary. I think it shows the um, confidence that he has in his own ministry as a prophet, in his own ministry as a teacher, in his own understanding of the law. Even at the age of 12, he was amazing the, the learned men that, that he knew so much out of the scriptures. All right, and um, this uh, to me this is this is a pattern we need to emulate. This is something that we incorporate in our training ministry. This is why Pastor Cliff or Larosa or anybody that's being trained here, um, they have to know that this is what the scriptures say and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Not that oh well, Pastor Bolander says this or Pastor Theme says this or or uh, Schofield says this or or uh, uh, 
you know, the systematic theology, uh, Schaefer says this. Uh, we can't be doing that. We need to be saying, this is what the Word of God says. And we search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. All right, so he's truthful. He um, teaches the way of God, not his own way, in truth. He defers to no one. Okay, And then he says he's not partial to any. Not partial, meaning he doesn't play favorites with his audience. He doesn't have... Uh, he doesn't... Uh, modify his message based on who's listening. Now, he's not going to be soft in one area just to try to flatter somebody. In other words, he doesn't do what they're in the process of doing right now. Because <laughs> they're right now just flattering, buttering them up, and they're, uh, they're testifying to what he doesn't do. That you're not partial to any. So tell us then, since you are so qualified in these four different ways, um, tell us then, as if we care about your opinion. What do you think? What do you think? Now, um, Jesus perceived their malice. Well, yeah, no kidding. I think even if he wasn't a prophet, it should have been pretty obvious what, uh, what they were trying to do here. Tell us then, what do you think? Now, how many times in the last three and a half years have the Pharisees genuinely wanted to know his opinion? Okay. Not often. And each time they've done so has been kind of a phony thing anyway. You know, they, they, they had this divorce thing. You know, how come Moses commanded a divorce certificate and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, but, and, and they dragged the adulterous woman before him, you know, as if he, had, as if he was a judge or had any kind of uh, authority for, uh, for her and her adultery. Uh, not often. They've not come to him for, for opinions or rulings. Uh, you know, are, are they truly wanting to factor in his opinion into some decision they're going to make? Obviously not. Um, but what do you think? This is, uh, by the way, this is uh, uh, rabbinic language as well. How does it read to you? What, what do you think? And, and it, 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 it gives the rabbi the opportunity to expound upon the scriptures and to give an application. Is it lawful? Is it compatible? Does it violate Mosaic law? Or not? To give the poll tax to Caesar. Point four. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the Lord's awareness of his enemies' malice, hypocrisy, and trickery. Here's more vocabulary for you. Malice in Mark, hypocrisy. I'm sorry, malice in Matthew, hypocrisy in Mark, trickery in Luke. We have so we've got a variety of terms that are employed. First of all, for the traps they set, and then for the motivation behind those traps. Malice, hypocrisy, and trickery. Again, not to spend a ton of time on these, but it does uh, help to help us to understand these are things we want to beware of if we start to see them as motivation. Um, in a lot of ways, believers have a hard time. I do. I don't. A lot of times, we struggle to identify why do they hate us so much. <laughs> what did I ever do to them? Right. Why does this unbeliever seem to have it in for me? What's going on? Well, take a look at malice, hypocrisy, and trickery. You start to look at what is the thinking that's filling their heart? What is the nature of their darkened heart? What is the, the nature of the, uh, of the realm that the unbeliever lives in anyway? And then why would they not hate you? They hate Christ first. You represent Christ. Don't be surprised that they, uh, that they would have the same attitude towards you. 
All right, so more vocabulary today. Again, we didn't spend much time on the traps. We're not going to spend much time on the, the malice, hypocrisy, and trickery. But it is interesting that uh, there would be such a variety in all three of these accounts. I like that. I like the fact that, they, that uh, the authors were free to use their own uh, writing style. They were free to use their own vocabulary. They were free to use their own uh, expressions. Uh, this is a positive thing in our synoptic studies. It's not a negative thing. Um, if, if they were exact word-for-word -word clone copies of each other, then the skeptics would, would uh, you know, say, well, that's just fraudulent. They were just copying each other. And there's no, they, they weren't uh, accurate uh, manuscripts. All right, poneria is our first term. This is the term translated in malice. Actually, I prefer wickedness to poneria. Um, it's a feminine noun, whereas poneros is a masculine noun or masculine adjective. Uh, but poneria is a feminine noun used seven times in the New Testament. for, And this is the only time it's ever translated malice. The other six times it's always rendered wickedness. Uh, like when we have it in Luke 11.39, Romans 1.29, 1 Corinthians 5.8. We're familiar with wickedness, I think, in most cases. Uh, but it is interesting because the wickedness is um, often disguised. And that's something we don't want to overlook. Luke 11:39. Whereas I think in pure evil, maybe there's just no effort to, uh, to hide it. There's no, uh, you, can't, you can't dress it up. Evil is evil. But wickedness gets dressed up in a very de uh, deceptive, seductive kind of way. And uh, the Pharisees are actually very good at it. Um, so in Luke 11:39, we see it here that the uh, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup uh, and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and poneria, wickedness. Okay? That's the reality inside. But outside they seem clean. The external appearance, man, these guys seem great. They seem godly. They seem holy. They seem like they keep the law. They seem to be very moral. They're uh, upstanding uh, citizens, people to be emulated. But the wickedness is hidden within. And that's uh, descriptive uh, of today's episodes, descriptive of the Pharisees in general. Romans 1.29 is a use that we have Sunday morning, part of the description of uh, Gentile immoral depravity. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 5.8. 1 Corinthians 5.8. Where again, you're going to notice the aspect of leaven here. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now there it's a different term, uh, kakia for malice, and poneria for wickedness. And uh, notice that it's leaven, it's something internal, it's something that's corrupting from within. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So malice and wickedness stands opposed to sincerity and truth. And again, we see that this is something that deals with deception. This deals with something that's not what it appears to be at first glance. Something that has an external appearance, but inside is something different. And that's uh, the malice or the wickedness of the Pharisees as they come to him with this temptation or with this question. Uh, Mark uses the term for hypocrisy, hypocrisis. And uh, remember, hypocrisy is not a translation, it's a transliteration. Our English word hypocrisy 
The actual translation of hypocrisis is uh, pretense, play acting. You're playing out a role. Like um, you got a mask on and the real you is under the mask. And so hypocrisis, 5272, it means to play act, to pretend, to put on an outward show, to put on a phony front. And that's how it's used in Mark chapter 12, verse 15. Other uses, the Lord's encountered this time and time again. But Matthew 23, 28 will be coming up here shortly. He's pronouncing all these woes upon the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. As pretty as you make that tomb on the outside, what's inside? Okay, a corpse. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisis, hypocrisy, and lawlessness. Boy, you don't think that's convicting? They viewed themselves as the pinnacle of law keepers. And he says the reality is inside you are the pinnacle of lawlessness. All right, then Luke 12, 1, another use of it. Luke 12, 1. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All right, so Mark is stressing the leaven and the hypocrisy. Mark, uh, Matthew was stressing the wickedness or the malice. And then Luke stresses the craftiness. Craftiness, a satanic term that applies uh, in many respects to the craftiness of the adversary. Panurgia, P-A-N-O-U-R-G-I-A. Number 3834. And I used to, uh, we did this study. When did we do this study? It must have been way back in 1 Corinthians 3. I remember doing this way back when. And Pon, I'm trying to remember now, the uh, Pon meaning every or all, and Uk meaning no or none, and Ergon, no work. Um, these are guys that are so uh, clever about how they don't get any work done. <laughs> right? And they work so hard to not do any work. You, know, you ever know anybody like that? And they actually, they go to such lengths to avoid work that you'd think, aren't you exhausted? You seem to be working so hard to not do any work. <laughs> when if you just simply did the work, it seems to me it'd be, you know, take less energy. Uh, but this is the nature of the crafty. And uh, I prefer the, the, the translation crafty or craftiness to trickery, but there you have it. So Luke 20, 23, our passage here today. Other uses, 1 Corinthians 3, 19. Remember, as, as crafty as you want to get, God is way ahead of you. His wisdom is far superior to the wisdom of this world. In fact, he catches the crafty in their craftiness. And uh, it's, it's a testimony to the wisdom of God and to the glory of his plan that he allows for the volitional realm of existence to do what it's going to do. He allows fallen angels to exercise their volition and human beings to exercise their volition. And it doesn't thwart him in any step. It doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't trap him. It doesn't leave him uh, scratching his head thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? See, because all the craftiness of the crafty is uh, not going to get him anywhere. God's wisdom is way ahead of him. 
It's the uh, glory of his omniscience with his uh, foreknowledge. Not only every choice, but every possible choice. And uh, under what circumstances, which choices will be made. So that's 1 Corinthians 3.19, where he catches the crafty and their craftiness. 2 Corinthians 4.2. Remember this one. Um, we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. There is nothing crafty about the Christian way of life. If, if a believer finds themselves trying to do something crafty, they're, they're following the wrong pattern. Okay? Christian way of life is, is transparent. It's manifesting the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. It's, it's wide open. There's nothing crafty about the Christian way of life. Chapter 11 and verse 3, and this is a concern on the part of Paul for the Corinthians, on the part of every pastor for his flock. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's not supposed to be crafty. And it's not complicated. You know, the uh, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And uh, it's, I find it remarkable. When people have criticism over uh, doctrinal ministries or, or, or churches where teaching is the main emphasis, um, and, they, and they just feel like, well, it's just, it's, there should be more. Well, you know, the Bible study is good, but when do you do your worship? Or they try to make things complicated. And it's not. It's simple. We're a body of believers and we come together. And why did we come together? What does the scripture tell us? Prayer, Bible study, communion, fellowship. It's not complicated. It's simple. And, uh, oh, well, you've got to gotta follow these models. and You've got to have these church growth dynamics. You've got to have all these groups and, and put people in their different categories and all these other things. No, we're not here to be crafty. We're here to be simple. We don't want to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And finally, Ephesians 4.14, we're well familiar with this. We're not to be tossed to and fro. And it's craftiness that will toss you to and fro. Ephesians 4.14. So as a result, we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, it's a different term there, by panergia, craftiness in deceitful scheming. We want no part of that. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So if there is some kind of craftiness going on, if there is some kind of uh, manipulation taking place, that ought to be a big red flag. We ought to understand, wait a minute, that's, we don't want to even go there. That's not what we're doing, Okay. Now, can I give you the other side of the coin? <laughs> of course I can. Um, I want to be careful, and so I will be, um, I will choose my words here with some care. That's not craftiness. Okay? You want to have discernment in certain realms of ministry. That's not craftiness. There is a place for a discerning spirit. There is a place for grace, uh, letting your speech be seasoned, as it were, with salt, with grace. Uh, 
there's, there, there are good ways to, to say certain things and there are thoughtless, hurtful, dangerous, you know, bad ways to say things. And so when you're, when you're being cautious about um, how you say something or maybe even to whom you speak, if uh, there's a concern about, uh, well, we want to have discernment. Uh, we, want, we don't want, um, we don't want uh, to be careless in certain things. There are, there are matters for privacy. There are matters for grace. There are matters for sensitive uh, things in the ministry. Am I making sense? That's okay. That's not craftiness. Okay? That's simply a, a godly wisdom at work. And I hope we're not splitting hairs here to understand that. That we're, we're avoiding craftiness every time we turn around. But there will be a place where there has to be wisdom applied in certain applications for um, a proper word or a proper action or things of that nature. Does that make sense? That's not being crafty. That's just being, I think when scripture says, be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves, that's what we're talking about. You've got to have a, a, a godly approach with wisdom and discernment for um, different, uh, different things in ministry. That's not craftiness. All right. Now for the meat of the message. This is all just kind of the extra stuff. Okay. And we've got five minutes left. Um, <laughs> I guess we're coming back next week. Um, the, the, the render unto Caesar and render unto God. The, the simplicity of his answer. You get back to Matthew 22 here. Point five. And under point five, we've got A, B, C, D, and E. So we've got, we got next week to work through this. Jesus' answer was simple yet brilliant. Simple yet brilliant. And um, he says, well, whose picture is that? <laughs> you know, genius. Absolute genius. Okay. Um, and yet, so uh, he brings in a, an undeniable uh, truth. Everyone can look at. The youngest of chi- uh, children can look and say, well, yeah, that's his picture on that coin. Okay. Um, and yet... Deeper than things that even, you know, you could spend months and years pondering the nature of uh, what is money anyway, okay? Uh, what, what is lawful? What, uh, what is the application here for us to make? So we're going to give you two sides of this, rendering under Caesar and rendering unto God, and understanding that we still have application of this today. This wasn't just a, a one-time message for the Pharisees to walk away with. It's kind of a gotcha, go away kind of a thing. But this is a truth. This is a command. He issues the command to these critics and leaves them speechless, but these are imperatives that we evaluate ourselves and say, yes, this is compatible with the New Testament. This is a, we're expected to do this. God expects us to render unto Caesar, and he expects us to render unto God. And so how do we do this, and why do we do this, and, and what is the, um, what is the uh, dividing line then if push comes to shove and we're faced into an either-or dilemma, Right? Now, he's avoiding the either-or dilemma here by telling them both and. You're rendering unto Caesar and you're rendering unto God. But what happens if you are faced with the either-or? How do you choose? And Scripture tells us how to choose. So we'll do, we'll do pretty well with it. Um, but whose picture is on the coin? What is the coin? Uh, why do you owe the coin? And is it legitimate? 
Is it a legitimate debt? Is it a legitimate tax? Uh, is, uh, is Caesar entitled to it um, or not? Is it lawful? Part of what we're going to talk about next week, and I've only got a minute left, but part of what we're going to talk about next week is going to do, uh, we're going to do ourselves a huge favor because we've already taught all is lawful but not all is profitable, right? We've already taught the principles out of 1 Corinthians as we relate to um, what we're expected to do and what we, you know, the have-tos and the want-tos of the Christian way of life. The idea of lawful, as if that's the only standard by which something should be done, uh, we, need to, we need to look at that and say, wait a minute, why are we serving? Do we do what we do only because we have to? Because it's required? Do we not do what we don't do because it's prohibited? Um, is the only reason why I don't steal because it's against the law? Because I'm afraid of the temporal life consequences of going to jail? Or, beyond the fact that it's a crime in violation of the laws of the state of Texas, uh, is it also a violation of the standards of God? That God said in his word, thou shalt not steal. So what motivates me? The temporal life law or the, the sin, the spiritual life truth? Am I trying to please my father or am I just trying to avoid punishment? I don't do bad things so that I don't get punished. Is that the only reason I don't do the bad things? Does that mean then that I would do bad things if I thought I could get away with it? <laughs> okay. Got to be careful here. And this comes, this is, a, this is actually, it's a fundamental uh, philosophy that every believer has to stop and make a, you know, stare at themselves in a mirror and say, I'm obeying God because I'm his child and I want to please him. And he sent his son to save me. And I want to do the things that are pleasing to him. Not the have-tos, but the want-tos. Okay? And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll break it down in that regard as well. And then we'll have our own application because we have to render unto Caesar. And, uh, well, we'll talk about that too. All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this day and the opportunity we have to um, explore this passage. And, Father, uh, very well-known passage. We've known it for years, but I pray as we... Uh, start to glean some detail as we start to really put ourselves into this circumstance that we can be honest with you and ourselves and identify that we are simply, uh, that we're not simply obeying out of a sense of law or duty or have to, but Father, we want to. This is, uh, this is our privilege to be uh, engaged in the Christian way of life. This is, well, why should we even have gifts and ministries and effects? But Father, you've blessed us and allowed us to have ministry and we want to uh, conduct our lives in such a way as to produce the maximum glory for your Son, for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we uh, continue in this study, that you'll open the eyes of our understanding and work in us, Father, uh, that which is pleasing in your sight. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, with thanksgiving. Amen.